This talk was given to a group of people sitting in silence during a meditation retreat. It is intended for a mind that is quiet and attentive. We invite you to enter into your own mini-retreat by sitting quietly and listening wholeheartedly. The teachings you are about to receive were freely offered. If you would like to make a donation to support their continuation, please visit us at dharmaseed.org. This pure mind, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection, Huang Po said. And so we should ask ourselves, what is this pure mind? In the teachings of the Buddha, we hear this word, samadhi. Samadhi is usually translated as concentration. And it has a prominent place in the teachings of the Buddha because it is samadhi, or concentrated mind, the collected mind, which is pure. And it's with this pure mind that we are able to see deeply into the way things are and disentangle our heart from suffering and the causes of suffering. So when we look at the teachings of the Buddha, we see that concentration is one of the eight factors of the Noble Path. It's one of the five spiritual faculties, one of the three trainings, and it is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. So it holds a prestigious position in the teachings of the Buddha. And the Buddha said of concentration, and I'm paraphrasing him, he said, there is no limit to the power of a concentrated mind. There is no upper end to how concentrated the mind can become. When I talk about concentration of mind, there's a, there's a common misunderstanding of what concentrated mind refers to. And I want to kind of try to clear, clear it up at the beginning of this talk so that we can kind of be on the same page as I go along. I prefer to use the word collected mind for samadhi. As we sit here in the room, our mind is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking about what it's heard and probably many other things. And so with all of that going on in the space of a very short time, actually the mind is quite scattered in all directions, towards all the sense doors. But if we're going to concentrate the mind so that the mind can do its work of knowing more 
penetratively, then we need to collect our mind. We need to collect a little bit of it that's kind of out there smelling, and a little bit of it that's out there seeing, and a little bit of it's out there thinking about the past and the future. And we need to kind of collect the mind and bring it into just what we're feeling in the body, or just what we're hearing in the, in the talk. And so this collecting of the mind gathers the dispersed energy of the mind so that it can be a little more powerful. It's something like a laser. You know, a laser is just light, but it's very powerfully magnified. And it can do amazing things because it is so concentrated, it is so collected, it is so condensed. So too with the mind. As we collect the bits and pieces of the mind that are busy elsewhere, the mind becomes collected. It has a more concentrated capacity. But sometimes when we hear the word concentration, we mistakenly assume that to be concentrated, we must focus very narrowly on the smallest particle of sensation that we can find at the tip of the nostrils. And that's concentration. Mostly that's a lot of tension in the mind and tension in the body. But you can have a pretty dramatic experience if you do that. But it's not samadhi. And so samadhi is not a function of how big an object you're paying attention to. But rather, it is a function of the continuity of mindfulness. The more continuously you are mindful, even a very large experience the more collected the mind becomes and the more powerful it becomes. So concentration, the samadhi that I'll be speaking about tonight, doesn't really have anything to do with the size of what it is you're paying attention to, but rather the effect on the mind of the continuity of mindfulness. It's important to understand what samadhi is and what samadhi isn't so that we can begin to develop it accurately and understand it when we experience it. Because it is samadhi that brings us initially the most delight in our practice. It frees the mind from the hindrances, secludes the mind, makes the mind tranquil, enjoyable, makes it feel okay, and it makes the body comfortable when the mind is collected. And so it brings the initial ease, the experience of ease in our practice. And until the mind is collected, there's a feeling of struggling and a feeling of needing to make more effort. But once there's a momentum to the mindfulness, and there's a continuity to the mindfulness, there's 
a willingness to relax. And in that relaxation of the body and that ease in the mind, the mind becomes more concentrated. The proximate cause for concentration is comfort. You want to be concentrated? Get comfortable. But, you know, somehow to get concentrated, we get kind of on top of things, we get really tense and we bore in. That's not comfort. That's not samadhi. And so, I'll try to point out how to do that in this talk. But first, let's step back and, and see where samadhi fits in the big picture of the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha encapsulated his realization of the truth and the liberating truth in what are known as the Four Noble Truths. And I think there'll be a, a discourse about the Four Noble Truths a little later in the retreat. And the Four Noble Truths are the truth of dukkha, the cause of dukkha, craving. There is an end to dukkha. And the Fourth Noble Truth is that there is a path to the end of suffering and the causes of suffering. And this noble eightfold path can be condensed into three trainings. And the first is a training in sila, where we purify our speech. Well, actually, we purify our intention when speaking and acting. And we purify it of the defilements that I spoke about the other night. Those qualities of mind that cause us to suffer. And when we purify our intention to speak and to act of these defilements, we... open the door to living without remorse, without regret. And we learn that we can live in harmony with ourselves, and more likely to live in harmony with one another. Watching our intention in this way, and purifying our mind of the intention, we can say, purifies the mind of the grossest manifestation of the defilements. But even if we do that, even if we are very careful in how we speak, and how we act, and with what the motivation is, where we're coming from, still, our mind can be pretty tormented, sometimes by obsessive, habitual, Worry, anxiety, desire, aversion, judgment, fear. And a stronger training, a more powerful training is needed to purify the mind of these obsessive defilements. And this is purifying the mind of the defilements. We're not just purifying our intention when we speak and we act, but we're purifying our mind of these habitual bad habits. 
And when we do, we're able to temporarily put them aside, and we enjoy the happiness of the unobsessed mind, which is tranquil, which is secluded from agitation and torment. The three factors of the Eightfold Path that make up this training are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And this training is called samadhi. It's what I'll be speaking about mostly tonight. But I want to place vipassana in the scope of the picture too, because samadhi is not vipassana. They are different. But vipassana is only possible with samadhi. So, even if we can purify our speech and our actions, we can purify our mind, still, the potential lies within our heart to act carelessly. And so, in order to purify the mind of its wrong understanding, to purify our understanding, we need a more subtle practice than samadhi. And that is vipassana, the development of wisdom. And through the development of right understanding, purifying our understanding, we uproot the defilements from the mind. So samadhi, the second training of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, means to concentrate the mind to purify the mind of the defilements. The primary factor of mind in the development of samadhi is called ekagata, or ekagata, which means gone to one point. The mind is gone to one point. It is a mental factor like other mental factors, faith, aversion, Desire, energy, tranquility, equanimity, these are all mental factors. And so too is this capacity of mind to go to one point. And it occurs in all moments of our life. It is the capacity of the mind to pick one thing to attend to in each moment. It can be developed very highly through concentration practices. But it is present even in the most ordinary and mundane thing you do, brushing your teeth. If you, couldn't, if you didn't have some concentration and you tried to brush your teeth, you might get as far as putting the toothpaste on the brush and then forget what to do with it. <laughs> or you'd get there and you'd start doing you know, the top teeth and the mind would drift off into something else. And so to do anything that takes any time requires a continuity of attention. That continuity of attention is samadhi. However, a 
thief in the night, breaking and entering quietly in order to wreak havoc on someone's life, is also very concentrated. So samadhi or concentration is not only developed through wholesome actions, like meditation, but it can also be developed very highly undertaking unwholesome actions. So we need to be careful. If we become very concentrated through any practice to guard the mind from being influenced in an unwholesome way. The characteristic of ekegata is to collect the mind. It prevents the mind from being scattered. And it functions so as to collect, as I mentioned, all the pieces of the mind that may be scattered towards all the six sense doors. But more than that, in any single moment of awareness, there are many factors present. There's energy, there's attention, there's intention, there's the will, there may be the wholesome qualities of mindfulness, tranquility, equanimity, non-attachment, non-aversion. There are many factors of mind which need to be collected and pulled into a single unit, meaning brought to a point. When the mind is brought to a point, when all these factors of mind are brought to a point, it is the function of ekagata to do that. It brings the mind together. It is responsible for that feeling. You know, sometimes you have a feeling and you sit down and you just feel so grounded. And you just feel like you turn your mind to the breath and boom, it's right there. That feeling of solidity, compactness, stability is samadhi or it is a function of ekagata. In this unification of the mind, as we pull our mind together, all the bits and pieces, and it comes together, and it becomes more powerful, the mind becomes unified, we begin to see things in a very unified way. And I'll give you an example. You might be walking in the upper walking room here, or you might be walking out on the lawn, and when you get very concentrated, and you're kind of just gazing at the floor, or you're gazing at the the lawn, and you're walking, and you're really paying very close attention, the continuity of your mindfulness is just really sustained. Have you ever noticed how you seem to see patterns in the way the grass is growing? Or you see patterns in the random uh, grain of the wood and you think, wow, they just fit together just like that. They don't. But it's your mind making a unified whole out of very disparate elements. It's because the mind is concentrated. It makes everything fit into a single unit. I remember one time when I did my 
first and only three-month retreat here, <clears throat> ancient history. I got very concentrated one sitting, the only sitting. <laughs> and in the, in the delight of this, wow, wow, this is a great sitting, I got up and, you know, wasn't paying too much attention. I was just kind of, wow, wow, wow. And I went outside. And I opened the door and I went outside. And it's just like, wow. I mean, it's like all of nature was right there just talking to me. It was so beautiful. It was so exquisite. Everything just fit together. The trees just fit together with the stone walls and the grass. Everything was just perfect for a while. But that's what the concentrated mind can do. It can make everything fit. Sometimes we can see the Dharma everywhere when the mind gets concentrated. I'm reminded of a of a story about Deepama, and you've probably heard stories about Deepama, one of our teachers from some years ago, a really great yogi. A friend of ours, Jack Engler, for his doctoral work at Harvard, gave the standard battery of psychological tests to a number of meditators who had evidently realized some stages of enlightenment. And so Deepama was one of them. And, you know, it gave the standard battery of personality tests and Rorschach and all these kind of tests, and then he interpreted them. Well, he gave the Rorschach test to Deepama. And, you know, the Rorschach test is the inkblot test. And there's ten inkblots. And they start out pretty simple. It's just a little black on the page. And you look at it, and what do you see? Well, you see an inkblot first, and then whatever else you can imagine. And as you go through the ten cards, they get much more complex and much more colorful. And depending on the openness and the freedom of your mind, you can see a lot. Well, he gave this test to Deepama. And when her results of a Rorschach were examined by independent people who didn't know her, they realized they'd they'd never seen anyone's Rorschach test like that. Never. And so they did some research, and of all the recorded stories or interpretations of people's Rorschach, they only found one other person that had a Rorschach like her. And it was given by a Native American shaman. And the distinctive characteristic of their Rorschachs was they told a story. The first card introduced the story, and every card after that was woven into the story, and elements from the first card showed up in later cards, and the last card, and the first card, and it was the story of, in Deepama's case, the Dharma. Never done before. Everything she saw was just part of one whole piece a very, very powerfully concentrated mind. And even our minds, maybe not that concentrated, but we can begin to integrate apparently very separate things about ourself, our mind, our body, our past, our future, our present, into a unified whole.
And that's the power of samadhi. Ekagata manifests as peace of mind. When the mind is collected, we feel at ease. The mind feels soothed, the body feels comfortable. We could say, everything's okay. And that's the feeling when the mind is collected like that. So we have the development of concentration through the development of this ekagata. Samadhi, as the second training of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, has, as I mentioned, three elements. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Right effort, there are four right efforts. The effort to avoid unwholesome states of mind that have not yet arisen. The Buddha was, the Buddha was really, uh, you know, keep it short. Avoid anything that is likely to cause you to develop unwholesome states of mind. That was his first instruction, injunction for everyone. Was if you think it's going to be bad for you, don't go there. <laughs> you know, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood, as some poet said. Don't go there alone. Take your mindfulness with you. Okay. So avoiding the unwholesome which has not yet arisen. Unfortunately, sometimes they arise anyway. And the second right effort is to abandon them if they have arisen. The third is to cultivate wholesome states of mind which have not yet arisen. And the fourth is to nurture them to fruition. Whenever you see wholesome states of mind, nurture them, support them, encourage them to strengthen This right effort, or these right efforts, are only possible if we have faith. If we have some degree of faith or some clarity of our aspiration, some willingness to make the effort. And the effort is always in the service of being mindful. Avoiding defilements, putting them aside, developing wholesome states of mind, and nurturing them all requiring mindfulness. So it is right effort or right efforts which condition right mindfulness. Right effort causes, we could say, right mindfulness. Right mindfulness is, as you know, the ability to be aware of the present moment. In the present moment, our senses are working. Our sense doors are being activated by sights and sounds and smells and tastes and thoughts and ideas. And so, in a single moment, it is the task of mindfulness to, or I should say it's the task of a kegata, to pick one of those to pay attention to, and it's the task of mindfulness to know it. Mindfulness may know the object that is striking the sense door, the sound that is coming to the ear, or the sight which is coming to the eye, or the thought 
or the idea, the concept, which is coming to the mind. Or mindfulness may choose to pay attention to the knowing of that sound, the knowing of that sight. Because when the sound strikes the ear door, it gives rise to hearing consciousness. There's the sound, the door of the ear, and hearing consciousness. Mindfulness can take any one of those as its object for being in the present moment. So when we give you the instruction, breathing in, feel that, and know you're breathing in. You can land your attention on the knowing. You can land your attention on the movements or sensations of the body. Or you can land them on the body itself. Any one of those three elements in each moment can be the target, if you will, of your mindful attention. With the mind attending to the present moment, in order to be mindful, we need to connect with it. And this connecting with the present moment or touching the present moment is the first factor of mind, what is called the concentration factors or the jhanic factors, the factors of mind that are most responsible for the development of concentration. It's being able to activate the mind so that it actually touches and reaches the present moment. Otherwise, it's just drifting. Your attention is maybe not in the present moment. Maybe. But if you have the faith and you make the effort, then you're more likely to be able to aim your mind to touch the present moment. If you can touch the present moment, there's a second quality of mind needed in order to know that moment clearly. And in order to do that, we need to sustain our attention on that object, on that experience. Or, as Kamala likes to acknowledge, to rub your attention onto that object in order to know it. If I asked you to feel the back of your hand with one finger, so you take one finger, the index finger, and you just very gently just place it on the back of your hand. You can feel that contact. But it's, it's kind of difficult to know what the texture is that you're really feeling. But now, as you touch the back of your hand, just gently rub your finger around the top of the back of the hand. Now you have much more knowledge about the texture of that experience. Much more than if you just touch it. If you touch it and rub it, you can feel how much more detail the mind knows about that experience. So too with your attention. When you place your mind or your mindfulness on the object in the present moment, it's not enough to just touch it. But we have to sustain and rub our attention onto that object in order to know it. When we are able to know the present moment clearly, like that, 
it's impossible to have any doubt about what that experience is. The factors that are most responsible for concentrating the mind are the factors most responsible for putting aside the hindrances. So, in the activation of the mind, and the, the energizing the mind to get to the present moment, we arouse it, we brighten it, we energize it in order to touch the present moment. And in doing that, we put aside sloth and torpor. Once there, and we are rubbing our attention onto the present moment, feeling it carefully, knowing it more completely, more details about it, it's impossible to have any doubt. And so the first two what, jhanic factors or concentrating factors of the mind, connecting and sustaining, put aside the hindrances of sloth and torpor and doubt. This is the practice of mindfulness. Really, all we can do is connect and sustain, connect and sustain, connect and sustain, over and over and over again, until we get really good at it. That's the work of being mindful. Putting aside any agenda that might attach itself to your mindfulness. The agenda to explain, to figure out, to create something, to avoid something, to... That's not mindfulness. That's some other agenda. Mindfulness only has the agenda to touch and know. So right effort, conditions, or is the cause for right mindfulness. Right mindfulness is the cause and the condition for right concentration. As I mentioned before, it is the continuity of moments of mindfulness which collects the mind, making it more powerful, developing samadhi. Initially, with our mindfulness, we have to make a lot of effort. It's like every moment we have to arouse the intention, aim our mind, get to the object, and try to find it and feel it and recognize it. Initially, it's a lot of work. But we can momentarily see that we overcome the defilements or the hindrances. Gradually, we begin to recognize when the mind is free of the defilements and when the mind is mindful. The work of the mind is to know. That's what the mind does. The mind knows. It knows sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, thoughts. When the mind is hindered in its capacity to know, it's dull, it's tired, it wavers, it's weak. It really doesn't know things very clearly. But when the continuity of mindfulness is developed and the clarity of touching, sustaining, and knowing is continuous, the mind, when it can do its work of knowing, unhindered, takes great delight. The mind likes to know in an unhindered way. This gives rise to the third jhanic factor, the third factor of mind, 
which is most responsible for condensing, collecting, concentrating the mind. And this is joy. Because the mind, unhindered, actually has a tremendous amount of energy. It is just unbelievable how much energy the mind has when it's not kind of ensnared in the defilements. So when the mind can take great, when the mind can know things as they are clearly, it takes great delight in knowing anything, even if it's unpleasant. The mind that is unhindered makes no distinction. Pleasant, unpleasant, doesn't care. Just wants to know clearly this is the present moment. When the mind is filled with joy, it likes what it's doing. It is just clear. It's, it's, it's amazing how how much fog we have to get through in order to really understand, really see, to develop the clarity of the mind when it really isn't hindered in seeing things. There are many stories about many ways of describing joy, but it is the element of mind that is responsible for interest, delight, Joy, rapture, ecstasy, spiritual ecstasy. (laughs) And the mind can become so fascinated in what's going on that it just gets ecstatic. Of course, when we experience that, how can you be averse to anything? If you're taking great delight in pleasant or unpleasant, internal or external, physical or mental, where's the aversion? So it is this factor of mind which is most responsible for putting aside all forms of aversion. When the mind is excited, when the mind is joyful, when the mind is just rapturously attending to the present moment, of course, it's pretty noisy. It's pretty amped up. It's pretty excited. But as we continue to be mindful of even that, because remember the instructions are to be with your primary object, the breath for most of you, or predominant objects when they arise. Well, when piti or joy arises, it's predominant, believe me. It is the predominant experience. And so it becomes the object for your mindfulness. The feelings of joy, the the pleasant feelings that are just coursing through the body, that becomes the object. And as we're able to be mindful of them, the pleasantness, without indulging, but by letting go, then the mind begins to calm down. And the fourth quality of mind, or the fourth condition for experiencing the stillness, the stability, the collectedness, the concentration of the mind, is sukha, which is happy comfort of mind and body. Instead of mainlining pleasant, 
mental states. We just put ourselves on a drip feed. Yeah? And it's much better. It's a little cooler. You know, who could have ever imagined that ecstasy would get too intense? Well, it does. It's just like too much. You want to need to chill out a little bit. So you get some comfort, happy comfort of mind and body. And when the mind and body are totally comfortable, where's the restlessness? The mind and body, they don't want to be restless. It's comfortable. And so it is this factor of mind which is most responsible for putting aside restlessness in the mind. So we have connecting, sustaining, joy, comfort. And the fifth factor of mind, which is responsible for the mind coming together, collecting, is this factor, ekegata, the one-pointedness of mind. It has three qualities. It causes the mind to be stable. You know, if you take a heavy bag of rice and you drop it on the floor, it's stable. It just lands. It doesn't roll. It doesn't waver. It doesn't wobble. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mislead you into thinking it's going somewhere else. Well, when the mind has this quality of single-pointedness in it, it lands on the present moment. And you know it. It's not wobbling. It's not wavering. It's not going anywhere. It's just staying right there. It's very stable. The second quality of one-pointedness is its steadfastness. Not only does it get there and feel stable, it doesn't go anywhere. It's steadfast. It enters and stays on the object. Stable, steadfast, and solid. It is a unified, non-agitated, non-distracted, undivided feeling. You don't feel that there's anything pulling your attention away around the edges. It's just there. Solid, steadfast, and stable. When the mind is so single-pointed, it has no desire for anything else. It's not wanting anything else. It's not wanting anything. It's quite at ease right there. And so it is this single-pointedness of mind which puts aside the hindrance of Desire. So it is these five factors of mind, called the jhanic factors or the concentrating factors of mind, which purifies the mind of the defilements. And the Buddha said of the mind, it is difficult to control, as we know. Swiftly and lightly it moves and lands wherever it pleases, but it is good to tame the mind, for a well-tamed mind brings happiness. When your mind is still, joyful, stable, steady, connected, the body and mind are comfortable, it is this happiness which most conduces, or it is this happiness which makes the mind or conditions the mind to be concentrated. So this one-pointedness, 
quality of mind that can be developed through putting aside the defilements leads to the experience of samadhi, the collectedness of the mind. Now, the collected mind can do many things. But there are two paths of practice, both requiring the collected, concentrated mind. And the Buddha spoke a lot about both paths of practice, and he praised those who practiced them. And he was very clear to encourage everyone to develop samadhi in order to tranquilize the mind. Because the mind that's agitated and fretful and stirred up doesn't see things clearly. It's agitated. It's it's unpleasant. It causes you to feel suffering. And so he praised those who could tame the mind by tranquilizing it. And the second use of samadhi is to penetrate reality in order to know it so cleanly and so clearly that it won't entangle you or mislead you in such a way as to cause suffering. Because it's this purification of our understanding that ultimately liberates the heart. It's not just avoiding unpleasant things or that which causes your mind to be unhappy. It's actually uprooting the misunderstanding that makes that possible. So there are two practices. There's the practices of absorption and the practice of penetration. I'm not going to speak much about absorption practices because most of us are not doing that here. But in the beginning of our practice, even as we try to develop insight, we can't help but develop samadhi. And samadhi, as I mentioned, is just the continuity of mindfulness, which is initially able to put aside the hindrances momentarily and eventually for longer periods of time. When these five factors of mind that I spoke about are fully developed, then it is possible for the mind to become absorbed in your object of attention. And when the mind enters the object, becomes absorbed in the object, it's an exalted state of mind which is free of the defilements and it's accompanied by all these five factors of mind. And it can be, it's, it's a very subtle experience, but very pleasant, very enjoyable. If you can continue, if you care to continue in your practice, then you can refine that absorption, attaining first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, or even subtler absorptions than that. But we're not teaching that here. Some of you may have had experience in the past, and so you know what I'm talking about. But rather than teaching absorption, we're teaching insight. And insight requires the same degree of development of mind, the same factors of mind, connecting, sustaining, joy, comfort, and one-pointedness are required in developing insight. But the difference is, 
between samadhi practice, which leads to tranquility, and insight practice, which leads to understanding. The difference is, in samadhi practice, the five jhanic factors land on the same object moment after moment after moment. If you're developing metta, it lands on the experience of metta over and over and over and over and over again. When the object of our attention is the same for long periods of time, the mind gets very collected, very concentrated. And the subjective feeling is of great stillness. The momentum of the mind just becomes very smooth, Developing the metta or developing concentration on the breath or on a sound or a visualization, whatever it is you're using. And the momentum of the mind becomes so smooth, nothing else can get in. You don't have stray thoughts. You don't have random thoughts. Your mind doesn't wander off. It just gets absorbed in that experience. So the subjective feeling is of great stillness in the body, stillness in the mind. In insight practice, the same factors of mind, the connecting, the sustaining, the joy, the comfort, and the one-pointedness are aroused in every moment. But in insight practice, as you know, first you're attending to the breath, and then you're noticing a sound, and then you're noticing a pain in the knee, and then you're having a thought, and then you're having a judgment, and then you remember the breath again, and you go back to the in-breath, and you have another... These five factors of mind, even though they're arising in every moment, are landing on a different object in every moment. So you're clearly knowing a sound, you're clearly knowing a sensation, you're clearly knowing a thought, then you're clearly knowing the breath. The subjective feeling is not one of great tranquility. Right? The subjective experience is things are out of control. Things are all over the place. I can't get my mind to settle down. And yet you're knowing each one of those moments very clearly. Well, if you're looking for tranquility in your meditation practice, you might judge that experience harshly. That would be a grave error. Tell your teacher about that. They'll hopefully correct your misimpression. Because actually, insight practice aims to understand deeply each of these moments. The physical moments, the mental moments, of whatever is calling your attention. And what insight reveals, or what insight knows about these moments, is they're impermanent. They arise, they're experienced, and they pass away. And that knowledge is invaluable. But you can only know that truly if you see the arising and passing away of each moment. The sensations in the body, the thoughts in the mind, the sounds in the room. And when you see the arising and passing away of each experience, you know Everything is impermanent. And because 
everything that you experience is impermanent, that's unsatisfying. It's just really, it's either unpleasant or it's very unsatisfying. It's unstabilizing. And so it cannot offer you the security and the peace that you long for. But this knowledge of the unsatisfiability, unsatisfiability? I guess that's the word. Well, the inability of experience to, pre, to be satisfying, that too is an insight knowledge. Invaluable, difficult to gain. Who wants to be unsatisfied all the time? But that knowledge of how unsatisfying each moment is, is invaluable because it doesn't allow you to hang on to anything but to let go. And when you see that everything's impermanent and you see how unsatisfying it really is and you see how it arises and passes away without you being able to control it, everything, this knowledge is also insight knowledge. It's invaluable. It's liberating. Because when you see that things are impermanent, they're unsatisfying, and they're impersonal, there's nothing to hang on to. And it is this understanding that can only be gained by the mind that is so collected and so concentrated that it can penetrate each moment's experience to realize this is the way it is. And that's why we develop the concentrated mind. So that we can gain the power of mind to see clearly this is the way it is and not to deceive ourselves anymore thinking, ah, if I just get this, if I just get that, if I have this experience, if I become that, then I'll be happy. Not insightful. But when we gain that power of mind to where the mind is as is, is sharp as a laser, and the light of the mind lands on the present moment and sees this is the way it is, then what's there to hang on to? When the mind lets go, the mind is free. This is the path of penetrative samadhi. Development of insight. Many ways to develop concentration. I have another whole page here of the 11 ways, but I've run out of time. So, good luck. (laughs) Sorry. Terrible. <clears throat> but you've listened. <laughs> Got it. Anyway, but you've listened to the Dhamma, and that's not insignificant because the Buddha said, even as the teacher teaches the Dhamma to him or her, that person experiences the meaning and the Dharma. And when he or she gains such experience, gladness arises. And when he or she is gladdened, rapture arises. 
For one who is uplifted by rapture, the body becomes calm. One calm in body feels happy. And for one who is happy, the mind becomes concentrated. This is the first base of liberation. And when he or she dwells diligent, ardent, and resolute here, his or her unliberated mind comes to be liberated. So let's sit. This pure mind, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. It is a jewel beyond all price. Thank you for listening. The Dhamma. This talk was given by Stephen Armstrong at Insight Meditation Society on November 14, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.